competitive 40k network presents art of war art of war strategy and tactics discussions with the best players on the planet on the planet with your host paul murphy and expert coach nick nanavati Hey everybody, welcome to the Art of War podcast. My name is Paul Murphy, your host. I'm joined by Nick Nanavati. Hello, Paul. Always exciting to be back. Love this podcast. It's awesome, man. We're also joined by Chris Wright. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey guys, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us where you're from. Tell us uh, what you got going on right now. Uh, so I'm from Australia. I'm in uh, Newcastle, which is quite quite close to Sydney. Uh, you've been tearing it up with uh, some Yanari, which is a faction we've seen kind of pop up every now and then and it's also a faction a lot of people think you, you know is is on the shelf so tell us you know how you you know what you, what you've won recently how well you've been doing recently uh, and then we'll let's talk about your list i guess also bef- before we get into that chris i just want to give a little bit more context you played craft world eldar at the wtc on team australia which went on to win the entire event so congratulations again on that and then I guess let's talk about why switching from Craftworld LR, which people traditionally think is more powerful and more commonly seen than Yonari, over to Yonari for a singles event. Uh, yeah, thanks Thanks for the kind words, Nick. Um, so, yeah, I was at CruteCon uh, recently, which was a 72-player six-round event. Um, With so an excellent weekend. name, I may add, CruteCon. Yeah, yeah, I think that was a, um, that was voted on by uh, the group chat, so that's that's what you get when you, you let that happen. Democracy at its finest. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there were a lot of crude being given out as prizes, actually. I think there was at least 10 boxes of crude being, it's being like thrown around. to go to Australia. <laughs> yeah, you can uh, really get the cutting edge of the meta when you're given crude for free, can't you? <laughs> um, so you, um, yeah, you asked, asked why the change to Yanari. Um, I actually think that Craft World Elder is probably better as well. Um, but Yanari is quite strong and Yanari is a lot of fun. Um, so after... As you mentioned, Australia did manage to win the WTC. Uh, I'm sort of having a little bit more of a casual outlook on it, um, going for fun first at the moment. Inari is, I reckon, the most fun you can have, um, though still still quite strong. They have they have their own um, their own power, uh, which uh, yeah, if you if you sort of build your list right, you can really leverage. Well, I'm really excited to get. Uh, figuring out what exactly your Inari list does. We've interviewed a Inari player once before on the podcast, um, so I'm really curious to see how your lists differ and if it's the same principle or if you're trying something totally different. Inari's a really underexplored faction. Why don't you walk us through your list? Well, well, real quickly, though, I do want to remind folks this is part one of a two-part conversation. Uh, so we're going to, in the first part of this podcast, we're going to be talking about the list itself, some stratagems, some secondaries that you go to, and maybe a little bit about uh, your path to victory, about how you, you've done recently. And then in part two of the conversation for subscribers, uh, we are going to be talking about, you know, more in depth about the tactical side of things, about you know what it takes to beat this list, how certain factions, how you approach uh, playing against certain factions to have the success that you've had. So, so my list, um, there's just a just a battalion. Um, so for HQs, we have two Farsis, uh, one on foot, one on bike. Um, the one on foot has the uh, support powers in uh, focus will to give something plus two to cast and fateful divergence to get me a command point. He's got the wall of trait ambusher blades, which gives a unit a nearby unit an extra AP in combat. I've got the uh, Farseer Skyrunner. He's my mortal wound guy. So uh, crushing orb is, a, is an Eldar power you may have seen and storm of whispers, which is a really powerful um, AOE mortal wound um, psychic power. Then uh, there's the Incarn, of course. Um, then we've got uh, two Warlock units, so one individual Warlock Skyrunner, 
with Ancestor's Grace to buff off the units melee, uh, as well as the Sunstorm Relic to give him obsec, make him a bit faster. Got a unit of three Warlock Skyrunners with Protect Jinx and Quicken Restrain. Uh, two units of Rangers uh, and two Harlequin Troops, so one nine-man with eight melee weapons, one six-man with all melee weapons. Uh, got a six-man Dire Avengers, two units of five Banshees, uh, three Spears, ten Hawks, one Viper, one Warwalker, and then a Star Weaver and a Wave Serpent. It's a pretty good mix. Yeah, I want to look at your list. It's kind of... Uh, so you can cram all of those different factions, uh, you know, uh, our different things into one list. The Harlequin, yes. the Aldari. Uh, how does that work for the Unari? So the way Unari works is you can have some Drukari and some Harlequins in there, but for each one of those you have uh, in each battlefield role, you have to have another uh, craft world slot in that same battlefield role. So for, I've got the two Harlequin troops, obviously in troop choices, so I have to have two Eldar troops as well. So that's where the Rangers come in. So Did you go... All right, go ahead, Nick. Oh, thanks, Paul. I was going to say, what do you give up uh, by playing Yanari? I know, is it just your craftful traits, or there's other stuff as well? Uh, so in addition to yeah, not getting another craftful trait, you lose the um, stronger, faster discipline. I can't remember if it's Fate or Fortune or whatever, but you lose Guide, Doom, uh, Will of Assyrian. Uh, you, it, it, is, it is huge. Yeah. It's one of the strongest things Eldar have access to that you lose there. Um, and you lose... Phoenix Lords, um, you, you can't take them in an auxiliary support detachment, um, but, yeah, you can't take them uh, in your um, regular Unara detachments. So what do you gain? I mean, that's a, that's a big opportunity cost, if you ask me. Um, so you get a really good craftable trait. So you get um, everything has fight first, and um, everything gets plus one to hit if it's below full strength. Um, so, so very, very potent abilities there. Um, you get a really uh, strong psychic discipline as well. So there's a couple of uh, really good powers that buff your units melee. So one that gives the unit plus one to wound in combat, um, one that you target an enemy unit, any six to hit that in combat, automatically wound. There's a, a really potent mortal wound power, as I mentioned. So it's every enemy unit within nine inches of the caster, you roll three dice, four ups of mortal wounds. Okay. Um, so, so you basically replace Executioner with another form of a smite-type power, you replace your craftful trait with a pretty combat-oriented craftful trait, always strikes first and sometimes plus one to hit when you're damaged. Um, you have an incarn, which is pretty cool, and you get to mix and match your units with Harlequins and Drew Kari. Yep, absolutely. That's a, a good a good summary. So I'd say the main three things that you're getting um, are, yeah, the incarn himself. You get some really powerful Harlequin troops um, when you combine their base stats with the Harlequin strats in the book. With the Inari psychic powers uh, and the extra AP ability from that Warlord trait, um, you get a Harlequin troop that will just mince everything. It'll just kill everything on the whole table if they decided to put it in front of it. Uh, so and so you talk get- to me about that, honestly, because that's that's a combination of rules I've not personally looked at with my Eldar stuff, and I'm sure a lot of players haven't either. Even our last Inari player, I don't think they were even using Harlequin troops much in their list. So... One of the challenges I pl- find when I play with Harlequins, I feel like their damage output, especially in the Armor of Contempt meta, is lackluster. They struggle to kill those tougher marine units and things like that. How do you buff them, uh, I guess, across all the different ways, and how potent do they get? Yeah, so their base stats are, are reasonably good, but not um, game-breaking. So you've got uh, the ones with weapons, are four attacks um, at strength four, minus two, two damage. So, you know, solid, but um, not going to tear everything to shreds. So you put that Warlord trait on them, so that's a unit within nine of the faster in the command phase, gets an extra AP in combat, so they're up to AP three. 
Um, and then you put the Ancestor's Grace power on them, they get plus one to wound in combat. Um, you can put uh, Unbind Souls on an opponent's unit, so six is to hit automatically wounded. Um, so you're already getting pretty incredible um, damage here. You, you can, of course, jinx the unit because you've got access to your Warlock powers. Um, so what was AP2 has now moved to essentially AP4. Um, yeah, you've made this unit quite potent. Yeah, absolutely. Then you've got your actual Harlequin strats. So there's um, plus one damage on the charge. There's fight twice. Um, there's then the ignore and vulnerable saves, mortal wounds on the charge, mortal wounds on sixes to wound. Um, so if you get all those buffs going and you manage to swing it right, you're looking at like, you know, killing three knights or, you know, just like literally anything that would be put in front of you. You said three knights? Like with yes, your five troops? Really uh, with the nine troops. With the nine troops. Um, with the nine main troops. That's with fighting twice. What? Sounds pretty good. What? That's amazing. Okay. I mean, and that's not, do you have like a practical example of that? Or is that just what the math says? Uh, that's just what the math says. Um, it's, it's unlikely you'd be able to sort of make that work um, in practice. Um, the best I did with one troop was kill um, a whole buffed up crisis unit. So I think it was like five crisis, five shield drones, plus shadow sun and her drones. Um, I think that was the best. Impressive on its own right there. Yeah. Um, so certainly... Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of potential there. All right, so you're all about these, like, taking a... I'm going to pardon my French here, but you're taking a turd and you're polishing it to make it a very shiny, beautiful masterpiece is kind of the idea here. But your army is not just made of uh, a unit of Harlequin troops. It's made of all these different units kind of spread throughout the whole thing, uh, and especially from all these different factions. How does it come together? Like, what is the overall strategy for this army? How does it play and perform on the table? That's a difficult question because the strategy depends a lot on the matchup, depends a lot on how your opponent plays. Just so you're um, aware, Chris, in part two, and all of our audience, uh, we're going to go through your matchups kind of individually and uh, how you approach each one. So I'm sure that's a big part of your answers, like you said, but try to be mindful of that. We're going to get to it. Yeah, no worries. Um, so some broad strategies are if your opponent gets a little bit aggressive, gets too close, um, your game plan is to kill everything. Um, it, it is actually that simple. Um, yeah, if they, if, they over, if they overcommit, they'll just die. If your opponent's playing very cagey, then you're probably going to do a little bit more. Uh, you're going to have to play a bit cagey yourself. Most units don't have that speed to get all the way across the table in one turn. So you're going to look to do a bit of stealing some objectives, using quicken where you can to, you know, you know, pull some shenanigans. Um, yeah, you're not going to do too much damage to someone well across the table. Um, and, you know, other matchups, you'll be doing various amounts in between. You have focused a lot on, like, mobile HQs. You could take in lots of different things in this list as far as HQ goes can you explain you know how you came to land on what you did yeah um so the incarn is great um so even if he wasn't great i'd still be taking him because as i mentioned i'm aiming for fun at the moment and he's tremendous fun um but he he is just so hard for your opponent to play around you can be as patient as you want with him and when you decide to to really make use of him um he can go out uh his ignore and vulnerable saves d3 plus three damage means he has really has the potential to you know shred most most things so that you know you've got to play carefully against him he's often not seen partly because you have to play inari to really unlock him but um it's more than nine wounds which means it can be shot which it previously couldn't be now it's a bit tougher with have damage and the four binville and all that so do you find people can just target her out and die and kill her or do you wish people to hide so I found that 
you, you, you can normally hide early in the game. Um, it's nice with the income that you can hide as far back as you want um, because, you know, you can just teleport forward when it's when it's time to come forward. Um, you can deep strike the income, which I did one game against Tau when I decided there wasn't enough um, terrain to hide everything. So, you know, that that is nice. Um, I found that in some matchups, it's easy to make fantastic use of, like, you lose something on your turn, teleport forward, kill something, and then... After the Incarn's fought, you might be able to kill something that's they've pushed up with and the Incarn can teleport back and you can keep bouncing around. And it's amazing. Um, other matchups, it's not going to work out quite so nicely and they will be able to shoot at the Incarn after your turn. Um, but I found that if you're patient and really focus on putting the Incarn in the right spot of the table, you can often get your opponent to have to commit a lot of their force to that part of the table to actually kill the Incarn. Um, and if they're doing that, you might be able to take control of the rest of the board. Interesting. I like that answer, kind of using it as a big distraction piece when you can't necessarily keep it safe for uh, long enough. Yeah, it's particularly good at that because, remember, if they kill anything else in the shooting phase, like if their plan is to charge the Incarn, if they kill anything else in the shooting phase, the Incarn's out of there. Um, so it really is really annoying to play against. Yeah, actually, I've used the Incarn quite a bit in 8th edition, and I liked her a lot. Back then, she could hide, and the game was very different, but she she was one of my favorite pieces to use because she was so uh, tactically flexible. It was also one of the most challenging pieces to use. It had quite the learning curve to it. Um, did you find you got better with using her as the tournament progressed or as you practiced this army, or did you just come out of the gate pro- totally proficient? Hmm. I think I got my best use out of the Incarn in the earlier rounds, actually. Um, yeah, so that could is yeah, that, I don't mean to interrupt, but is that a byproduct of the earlier rounds you're playing against less experienced players? So she's going to shine because people don't know what to do against her. That would certainly help. Um, I did play against some um, some reasonably good players in the early rounds as well. Um, but but yeah, that could have been part of it. Maybe I was just more tired in the later rounds and um, didn't didn't strategize quite as well. Yeah, there's a million factors to events, you know. I think over the weekend, I probably um, was able to really effectively do the bouncing around in in two of the games. Uh, in three of the games, got some decent use out of the Incarn and then was quite happy with the amount of effort they had to put in to kill it. And then and then one game, I think I just didn't use very well um, and, uh, yeah, did a little bit of damage and then died in, in a little bit of a disappointing way. All right. Well, uh, that happens you know, to the best sure. of us. No worries there. Who has lost their favorite model? Disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, of course. Your troop squads going down your list are a little different in size and, I guess, performance. Uh, one is this larger unit with a bunch of weapons. The other is this medium-sized squad, I guess, with a bunch of weapons. What's the thought process there? Yeah, so I started with two big squads. Um, the issue is the Hollywood troops are not actually that fast. Um, they can no longer double move. You can't auto-advance in six anymore. So they're mostly coming out and kills, killing something that gets... Like, not close to you, but, like, close-ish to you. Um, and I found having two units both in that same role was a bit uh, redundant. So the second unit went down to a six-player uh, squad, and I got a transport for them, which helped them to really, um, yeah, play a different role, hit some things a bit further up the table. Nice, I like that. That's so that's some good testing, because I think two squads is a... Uh, were the Rangers taken in here? Is that just a point consideration, or, did, or are they actually doing something for you on the tabletop? Uh, they're not doing a lot. Um, as I mentioned, you have to have an Eldar troop for each non-Eldar troop. Um, so that's why there are two units of rangers there. Um, they do have a little bit more utility 
when you've got the Incarn in your army, they can be a nice thing, the Incarn to teleport to. Um, I imagine Rangers set up in midfield behind a wall requires your opponent to charge them typically to remove them, which opens up Incarn teleporting after he's done. Yeah, so that can be a really potent thing. Um, another good use, um, depending on you know where the terrain is in re- relation to the objectives, is you can have a Ranger partially out in the open, and if they don't set up a lot of shooting to kill it, they shoot set up a bit, they kill the Rangers, the Incarn teleports in and takes that objective for you. Um, so if they set up you know, a whole army worth of shooting at that Rangers, then sure, you don't teleport the Incarn over, but yeah, just a small amount here. Um, can can maintain your objectives there. So moving down your list even further, it looks like you've got a serpent, which I'm going to guess transports your dire avengers and your banshees. Uh, I've got double banshees. I normally put both banshees in the serpent. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't catch the second unit. Okay, double banshees and the serpent, and that's just your kind of moving in the middle of the board, ideally behind terrain and projecting enormous threat ranges out there. Yeah, I I really like having the serpent <clears throat> for the banshees. A because you get three extra inches movement with the disembark. MB because you can often put a serpent in a spot where you couldn't just put banshees. Yeah, yeah. I think that's um, one of the biggest uh, values to dedicated transports that people may not value. The, the free three inches to your movement is wonderful. And then uh, what happens a lot in 40K is it's so potent right now. The damage output of armies is just uh, turned up to 11 a lot of times that five banshees is never surviving unless it's behind a wall out of line of sight. And you don't have control necessarily of where the walls are on your specific table. They could be a little out in the, like not in a useful spot, a little far back, not on an objective. And then your banshees hiding behind the wall aren't in an effective spot because it's not that useful. So taking the serpent to allow yourself to get to more useful places on the table that would otherwise be exposed, I like that a lot. I think transports in general are great for that, especially the more durable ones. It's um also nice to be able to chuck five ranges into the transport after some banshees get out. Um, that can set up some nice objective stealing plays or can help you retrieve data if that's something you've taken. That's clever. Um, kind of using that serpent for more than it's worth after the banshees get out. You used a serpent at WTC, if I recall. Um, was it a similar role in that list? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what, what is the purpose of the random Dire Avenger unit then? Um, so A, Dire Avenger is just great. Um, it's nice to have a bit more shooting in there. Um, and the um, secondaries are very bad for Inari. Um, it's it's a little bit sketchy, but you are actually, uh, rules as written, only allowed to take the rulebook secondaries. Um, wow. Yeah. I was yes. going to ask so about secondaries in a bit. It's um, it's a little bit iffy. Um, so in the when the Codex came out, Inari could take Craft World secondaries, um, but um, in the uh, mission pack, only Aziani armies are allowed to use those secondaries, um, and you're not Aziani, you are Craft Worlds. Um, it's not. It's not right. the same thing. Um, you're, you're no, all those keywords, man. Name and Azriani yeah. is like a keyword within the codex. Yeah, so you've got part Aziani, part Harlequins um, in the Craftworld army. Um, so if it, you could talk to your TO, and your TO might allow you to take um, the Craftworld secondaries. Um, but um, yeah, as the as the um, rules is as written, you you are only allowed to take um, the the rulebook ones. Um, so you're often taking retrieve data. Unit of six star Avengers is perfect. You know, chucking at the webway, they come down, action and shoot. Um, so that that's really nice. Uh, yeah, so they're, they're just a good unit. Okay, and then you're usually deep striking them. You said, yeah, if you take retrieve data, you're definitely deep striking them. If you don't, you know, maybe maybe not. Well, continuing our work through your list brings us to the fast attacks. Um, Spears are an interesting choice. I think a lot of players I know uh, on the competitive side of things have tried out Spears a couple times, and the 
pretty much the consensus about them is that their 60 mil bases, that new base size they come on, is actually too clunky to kind of afford to play with. It's it's challenging to hide a unit of even three spears behind terrain when you could hide like 20 infantry in that same footprint size. So it's just not very space efficient on the table. And then, of course, they're not infantry, so they struggle with walls sometimes. Did you like your spears? Yeah, I do like the spears. Um, remember, again, the extra buffs to combat you can get with Yanari, um, with a plus one wound, extra AP, and, and all that kind of thing. Um, so that's good. Um, the, the base size is a really big downside, but I, I still think spears are good. You have to use them differently, but I think they're still good. How do you use your spears? Um, they, they often attack the flanks, so the, you know more towards the center of the board. There'll often be the wave serpent with some banshees in it. Um, there'll be some the, the big harlequin troop, and then um, if there's any terrain towards the side, that lets me put uh, the three spears or the star weaver with the harlequin troop in it. That's sort of where they will tend to go. Um, and it's nice that that 16-inch move is is good. Sort of not much else offers you quite so much movement. Right. Just move to 16 or reposition 22 to behind a wall. Do you, do you often find they end up in the open or not even necessarily in the open, but your opponent can move to get an angle on them because their bases are so large? Um, didn't really come up. Uh, it hasn't come up too often for me. Um, but if you were trying to put them... Uh, yeah, you've got to be really careful where you put them. If you're trying to put them in most spots on the table, I'm sure that would, would happen. Just play with good terrain. You'd be all right. I mean, that's, Can that's you a still good seat. Did you know the terrain format you were playing in? I'm not, we haven't even covered that. Uh, no, I didn't know the terrain format. Eldar in general is a very terrain dependent army, if only because they're made of paper for the most parts. So they have to be able to hide. Not knowing the Absolutely. terrain format you were playing in, was that scary for you picking an Eldar list? Uh, again, you're um, giving me too much credit for having thought about this. Uh, <laughs> just the army seemed like fun. Um, that's about as much thought. I mean, for, for the army seeming like fun, you want a 70-person tournament on a whim. That's pretty cool. With Yanari and uh, things. So I had I had tested, yourself enough credit here. I had tested the army a bit. We were thinking about it for um, WTC. Um, it had a nice surprise factor. We thought people certainly wouldn't be ready for it, uh, and it has some very good I'm pretty sure everyone would have been like, "What the hell, Australia?" More exactly. so than they already were. Um, it's it's really potent into some of the um, armor of contempt armies. Um, so uh, we're thinking if there are a lot of Death Guard and Thousand Sons, this would be a great choice. Um, yeah, in the end, we're pretty glad we didn't go that way because it wasn't quite so much of that. Um, but yeah, so I had tested the list just um, uh, a few months ago. Okay, very exciting. Um, moving through uh, it. With, with the with the shining spear stain on them, can you still buff up the Exarch to basically be almost like a, a mini Autarch? Yeah, he hits hits harder than uh, you can make an Autarch hit, I believe. Um, so he's six attacks, free rolling hits and wounds, um, and mortal wounds on five plus. Uh, in addition to any you know Unari psychic powers or, or whatever you might want to put on him. How often do and, you practically put all your buffs on the same unit and just make it like Super Sand Missile unit that just goes in and kills whatever it touches? Or do you spread them out and have like a lot of engagements across the board? Um, so if I've got a lot of engagements across the board, that probably means my opponent's overcommitted. As I mentioned, you kind of kill everything when that happens. So most of the time they'll be committing with a smaller amount. I'll be committing with a smaller amount in return and, yes, yeah, stacking my buffs onto one or maybe two units. So with this, with the buffs going on the spirits, what buffs are you typically interested in? I imagine like uh, Ambush of Blades for the extra AP, probably irrelevant when you're AP4. Uh, used to be more irrelevant now with Armor of Contempt, it sometimes matters. Um, but they are fairly rarely within nine of that foot fast here. Um, yeah, most of the time, as I said, they're more towards the flanks. 
Um, but the plus one to wound uh, in combat is is probably the best one there. Does that make the Paragon Blade combo trigger mortals on fours? Uh, no, I don't. I'm pretty sure that's unmodified. And just for those listeners at home, it's the combination of, I believe it's the Paragon Blade and Heart Strike, I think it's called, that that's allows right. you to have six attacks that reroll everything wounding on uh, mortals on fives. Is that correct? Yeah. So yeah, those things hit. Um, you have a unit of 10 Swooping Hawks, which is a unit I personally love. I use it all the time. But I use it in like Craft World Eldar, where I get bonuses to shooting and guide to make those sixes to hit uh, auto wound. Very reliable. And I have access to Jinx and things like that. How did you find the Hawks without any of those shooting support buffs? Yeah, it's certainly sad compared to the Hawks that I was running at WTC, which was the Swooping Hawk Craft World, um, which let them move up to 20 inches, still teleport. They're ignoring light cover. They, of course, had Guide and Doom. Everything was great. Um, look, they're still they're still worth taking. Um, Inari is not the strongest shooting army, and they're not the best at reaching out across the board and uh, hitting things you know, a long way away. So Hawks just give you a different angle of attack, um, help you clean up some some uh, lighter targets. I guess one of the challenges to swooping Hawks is just two up saves in general that they really bounce right off, but your army has so much close combat that you have two up saves covered, it seems. So they, they really help with screening, I imagine, and just uh, the chaff stuff that you don't want to necessarily commit close combat to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Sometimes you just want a different tool in your toolbox, and I can respect that. Um, this brings us to some of my favorite parts of your list, a random solo walker and a random solo viper. What are these about? Yeah, so I'd love to have lots of vipers, but I ran out of fast attack slots. Right. Um, Isn't so that the other problem? Oh, that's the first yeah. time we've heard that on the show, by the way. I'd love to have <laughs> lots of vipers. I like vipers. Uh, Bob, you know I love my solo vipers. I'm just saying that we've heard lots. There's a difference between one or two and, and a preference for lots. <laughs> Get nine in here. Uh that I was looking at a list with nine vipers at one point. I was um, too. Oh man, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should uh, we should be collaborating here, shouldn't we? Yeah, we should. Um, so so yeah, like vipers are great. Don't need to explain that. War walkers are good too. Um, you know, it's nice to have uh, their decent speed. They get a decent amount of shots. Um, you know, you need things to screen. Anything cheap has extra utility when you've got the incarn in your army. Um, yeah, so they're just some some nice, useful things. Do you just take st- cheap stuff for the sake of che- taking cheap stuff? Because um, you know, screening and having cheap units is something that Eldar always are thankful for. And then with the Incarn, it's even more magnified because it's so many potential teleportations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if if I couldn't take Vipers and Warwalkers, I'd be um, looking at the next thing that I could take that was that was really cheap, yeah. So piecing this all together, your footprint for this army is going to be like a Wave Serpent, a Star Weaver. Three bikes, swooping hawks, which are very small when you bunch them all up. Um, a couple skirmishy tanks, and that's. Did I miss anything? Is that pretty much it? Rangers infiltrate. It's uh, really small. Did you mention the nine man troop? Yeah, nine man harlequin troop, which kind of hides behind a wall. I imagine. Yep. So. Uh, yeah, fairly small footprint. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that's actually very easy to hide, and kind of like how you were able to keep it alive, um, especially you said you played against Tau, so I'm sure they were trying to shoot you. But uh, in general, against the gun armies, that's probably a great shout. But how do you move across the table effectively? Um, What I find with Eldar close combat units is if I don't have terrain where I can terrain hop effectively, moving from behind one piece of line of sight blocking to the next without spending a turn in no man's land, um, I'm kind of pinned to wherever I've deployed. And for a combat army, that can be very devastating. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right there. So um, first of all, that's where I think taking the the wave serpent um, 
is of uh, utmost importance. Um, so you're ex extending that Banshee's unit by uh, Banshee's unit threat range by three inches, um, which you know, as we said, you can also theoretically um, get the wave serving to spots that the Banshees couldn't go. But if we just think about the three inches, that itself can be game changing. Um, you can guarantee if you have a uh, six on your fate dice for advance and charge, you can guarantee charge anything within 25 inches. Um, and, you know, that's probably your deployment zone to their deployment zone. You can probably threaten most of the objectives on the table with that. Um, and, you know, that's that's letting you interact regardless of, of where the terrain is. Yeah, definitely key on the serpent there. Do you find the serpents tough enough to, or, or do you try to keep it out of line of sight itself? Uh, yeah, you, early game, you're pretty much always going to have to keep it out of line of sight. So it's just hiding where the Banshees would be. Obviously, it takes up a little bit more space, but I think it's worth it. Um, it's particularly okay if you've got the multi-level ruins, like um, in WTC, where it can go on the bottom and then, you know, your Swooping Hawk can be on the top and you might have um, the Warlock Skyrunners on the second level or something. Um, so you can, um, you know, hide sort of three units in the one spot, um, which we did have at all the tables at, at this tournament. As I mentioned, I didn't know what the train was going in, but um, it was pretty consistent across all the tables. There was one big um, three-story WTC ruin in each deployment zone. Uh, I think four total of the smaller ruins across the table, um, a set of cargo containers, and then a couple of um, the vents. Nice. Okay. So Krukan has good terrain. Noted. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it looked, it looked a little light on the pitches, but um, when I actually got to playing it, it was it was good. Cool, cool, cool. Did you know the missions you were going to be playing before going into it? Did that have any impact on the on the list itself? Uh, no, they they gave us the missions before the tournament, but not before list submission. I don't think. Gotcha. All right. So when I look at this army playing on the table, I'm thinking it's a close combat army. It's relatively fast. It's it's super potent when you get all your combos off, and it's got a lot of tricks. I'm not seeing much substance in the form of defense there. Um, and, you know, it's if it doesn't get, if it gets shot or if it gets charged, it is just going to die, right? It's just Eldar defensively. So. Who needs a good defense if you have an amazing offense? I, that's, ain't that the truth, Paul? But uh, is that the case, Chris? Is that is that really the plan here? Who needs a good defense when you just kill everything? Um, uh, look, it's sort of on the right track. But, I mean, of, of course, you, you are hiding most of your army. So, um with how potent your counterpunch is when things get close, it's generally quite difficult for your opponent to get in amongst your lines and, and clear your backfield. Um, so you'll quite often find that both players clear the centre on their turn. Um, so that's where it's really nice to have things like Swooping Hawks, which can get you in some free damage, not making you trade. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also... Take, not trade is a saying we always have. Absolutely. Um on there and uh it's also really nice to have that really potent mortal wound fast here um in addition with the ability to quicken him back um so between him and the swooping hawks you can get a pretty good amount of free damage in each turn um in addition to sort of as i said trading trading units over the center and you can potentially get ahead on units going into the later parts of the game and then you know the rest of your army actually can push out um things like your wave serpent actually become difficult for the opponent to clear um, when you move it into the middle of the table and, um, you know, you can start to take over later on. All right. This kind of brings me up to the mission part of this game. How do you actually score your points? You mentioned secondaries were a challenging prospect for this army because rules is written. You only get rulebook secondaries and those have been nerfed quite a bit from what they used to be. 
How do you go about picking secondaries and scoring them in your games? So you're essentially always taking a psychic secondary, kind of even if you don't want to. Um, yeah, because your options aren't great. Um, so that's normally that Warlock Skyrunner's job. Um, so uh, the the fellow with um, Ancestors Grace and Sunstorm. Um, so I like psychic interrogation the most. Um, I take that most often. Why do you um, prefer that to psychic ritual? Uh, I'd usually see players go for that because you only have to use it three times. It gives you a couple turns off and a couple turns of being denied or failed without being able to mess it up. Yeah, psychic ritual, I think, has its place. Um, so psychic interrogation, I like that you can score the max 15 um, because with with the army, you know, secondaries can be a little tight. It's nice to actually score 15 on one of them. Um, and it's really nice that you often don't have to go into the center of the table to get it. So, so uh, warp ritual, sort of every single turn, or every single turn, the three times you're doing it, you're going to move into the table, you're going to cast it, and then you're going to quicken away. So A, you're committing quicken to that model all three of those turns, and B, if they have any ways to deny in their army, they're essentially guaranteed to be in range of trying to deny you. Um, whereas with interrogation, if they push any of their characters further forward, um, then you can do it from your deployment zone. You can often do it out of deny range. Um, so I, I find that the only times I take Warp Ritual are if all of my opponent's characters can deny, um, in which case, you know, you're not getting that benefit from um, interrogation that sometimes won't be deniable. Um, and when's the other time I take Warp Ritual? Is it if their characters can go into transports or stay far back? Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing can definitely come up. I mean, far back isn't that big of a deal if it's... So, like, one of my games against Tau, he deployed all his characters uh, back line, but I just sort of moved forward, did it, quickened back, and then he moved his characters up because he wanted to do things with them anyway. Um, but if if their characters, maybe Gene Steel Cult or something, which are, like, actually going to stay back all game, um, that's sort of the difference there. I guess I'm thinking also, like, Hammer and Anvil backlining is you're not even doing it turn one, you know? You probably are, because um, remember, he does have Sunstorm, this guy, so he can advance 26 inches. Oh, it's cheeky Sunstorm. I like that. Yeah, so it sort of gives him extra utility. You might get to turn four or so and just throw him forward, steal an objective, do your, your interrogation. Maybe he dies and maybe turn five you've got to interrogate with someone else. That's fine. Um, Sunstorm yeah, is, he, a, is a relic, right? It gives I forgot it gives you the extra movement on your advances, but it also makes you obsec. That's just utility? Yes, yes. Um, you, you normally um, get a good few uh, points um, out of that if you use it well. It's one of those things I've always looked at and never bought, bitten the bullet on. I haven't found room for it in my pure Eldar lists because I've always been taking Outrider Detachment and I want to have some CP still, um, but with just the Battalion... Uh, that I've got in this Hinari list, I'm happy to spend the one on that relic. Okay, so you're you're taking a psychic secondary. What else we got? Um, so I take banners a lot of the time. Um, uh, I've talked a lot about how strong the counterpunch is when things get close. So it's it's um yeah can can be good to pressure your opponent coming forward. And I just think banners is generally a pretty good secondary now after they changed it. So you you can put banners up even when opponents are on there. Um, but sometimes you can't take banners, right? If you're playing Necrons, you probably can't take banners, in which case, uh, retrieve like data. Data scry where all your objectives are central, scouring. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, certainly plenty of times where you can't. So you're probably going to have to take retrieve data in that case. Uh, if you can take a kill secondary, then you probably should. Um, so I took uh, No Prisoners a couple times. I took Assassination at least once of the tournament. 
Now, kill secondaries, um, uh, let's just go into that a lot. We, a lot of times in the podcast, on Art of War, things we just teach, we always talk about having a reliable plan that doesn't require uh, your opponent's participation, meaning that if your opponent doesn't give up no prisoners or assassinate or bring it down, and your plan is to take a kill secondary, well, that sucks if they don't bring it, give it up. But your army is kind of forced into wanting to take a kill secondary if able, one, because you're potent, and then two, because you don't have better options. Do you find you're in a really tough spot when your opponent's list doesn't give it up, or is the meta moved to a place where everybody gives up something? And I guess also a follow-up question, what is the acceptable threshold for you to, like, a lot of people don't give up no prisoners for 15, but, you know, they give up a 12. Is that acceptable? Yes, that's a good question. Um, 12 would definitely be acceptable. It, it's sort of, you, you look at your opponent's list and you think how the game's likely to go and how, if, if they can win by being defensive. Um, so you look at a Necrons list, they often give up heaps, they might give up 15, but sometimes they give up less, maybe it's more like 12, but you know their secondaries, kind of, a lot of them involve them pushing forward and taking some of the mid-board objectives, so you know that you're going to be getting some no prisoners points, um, so I would still take it. Honestly, I, I took no prisoners when my opponent only had, I think, I definitely took it when my opponent had 90 wounds one time, um, wouldn't surprise me if I've taken it with even less um just because it's if, like if you know you're going to kill everything it's consistent nine ten points yeah absolutely there's another element to this with the the tempo and the onus of the game is how i like to call it so if you take something like assassinate versus somebody you have to go kill their characters and unless they hand them to you on a silver platter that means you have to go kill the characters you have to get aggressive you have to wade through their army to find the juicy good bits uh is that a consideration of yours like taking one of these kill secondaries lets your opponent become more defensive and you have to dig out those points are you good at digging out those points yeah so you certainly are, are okay at digging out the points um the you know the, the swooping hawks are going to keep chipping away those those psychers being able to push forward and do those mortal wounds is a big deal um so if you take assassinate and they try and hide their characters, you'll still often be able to really whittle them down um, and, and potentially finish them off. So that mortal wound bomb, which hits everything within nine of the Psyker, three dice or four ups, if you push your Farseer up turn after turn and keep doing that, um, you know, you're going to be really threatening to uh, to kill the characters. You've also got Crushing Orb, you've also got Gaze of Iniad, which is not great against characters, but, you know, there's a oh, lot of ways to, to get these kills over the course of the game. And all those either AOE area of effect target hit whatever they hit or can actually select a character as a target. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. You can, over the course of the game, roll a ton of dice into a variety of units and just kind of degrade them via mortals. That's pretty cool. Mm, yeah. Um, that's certain- been the, the primary attraction, I think, to Yanari in the list that I've seen is being able to have that kind of explosive mortal wound power. Like, you know, It's not uncommon. Like, I could do 50 mortals a turn. You know, it seems to be something that they tout. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I actually um, I see a hemlock often in a lot of Yanari lists, and, and towards the end of this, we'll get into other units you've taken. But um, the hemlock is great because it can deliver gazer, uh, the area of effect power, I forget what it's called, all up in your yeah. opponent's face and you know, leadership bomb, become a nice incarn teleportation spot if your opponent kills it at the wrong time. It's pricey, uh, and I don't know that it's super reliable. Have you tried it at all? Uh, no, I haven't. I hadn't even thought of it. It sounds bad because there are a lot of points. Um, yeah, you could. Yeah, I could see it. I could see giving it a go. Um, what I mentioned with the Farsi, um, moving him up, doing the power, quicking him back. That is another reason that I, I prefer to not take Warp Ritual because I do like to have quicken on that Farsi. Yeah, you want to quicken awesome. for a different purpose than safety on Warp Ritual. Yeah. 
Makes sense. Uh, with the secondaries, um, the uh, other option is tends to be engaged in all fronts or behind enemy lines. So engage in um, all fronts has gotten a lot harder with Nephilim, uh, and your army's not designed with like three by three Vipers, three Warwalkers, all this MSU stuff to go get engage. Uh, how do you find it? And then I guess I hate engage. You hate, I hate it. it with with almost every army. Um, you know, if you really build your army for it, it can be okay. But sometimes you kind of have to take it. I normally prefer behind enemy lines. I think that's actually a good secondary. Um, but behind enemy lines of- is something I see some players, especially on the competitive circuit, take and often take with good success. I have not found much success with it personally. How do you, I mean, conceptually, very easy, go into your opponent's deployments on score points, but. Throughout the course of the game, there's the ebbs and the flows, there's objectives, there's the fact that your opponent is participating as well and knows you're taking behind enemy lines. How do you open up the opportunity to score it reliably, repeatedly? Um, hmm. Reliably, repeatedly. I I probably more see it as something that you pick up um, here and there early on in the game, and then hopefully later in the game um, you can make a big push for it. So you might look to score it. Even just even four points in the first three turns, that's probably not great. But if you can then get eight points, so four turn four, four turn five, you still scored really well on that. So really um, trying to finish the back half of your game in your opponent's deployment zone when you're just going to get points for it. And, you know, if you score in the beginning, that's cool. Yeah. And um, so like sweeping hawks in the late game are great for that. You just teleport them into their backfield, maybe turn four, and hopefully you're in a spot where they can't necessarily clear them. And then you'll score it again, turn five. Um, Banshees can be good with that, with um, especially coming out of the Serpent. Um, they can move quick enough to to go and push there. Sometimes you can teleport the Incarn back there. Um, yeah, so I, I find I tend, I tend to score reasonably. They're rarely 15 on that one. Um, though I do pick it more often um, when there's more objectives in the opponent's deployment zone and when their deployment zone is closer to my uh, to my deployment zone. So um, sometimes you're 24 away, sometimes you're less than that um, if it's like table quarters and stuff. So that's when I'm more likely to pick it. A lot of players I've spoken to about Inari or comments I've read around the internet about Inari seems to think that it's an alpha strike type of army where they're just delivering tons of mortals to your face and uh, trying to blitz you very quickly. And that seems to not be the approach you're taking. I find that approach makes a lot of sense because you have such a a poor defensive plan secondary-wise. Like, you can take banners, but largely speaking, you're taking kill secondaries, you're taking engager behind enemy lines, you're going for your opponent's side of the board throughout the game. So you might as well get aggressive with it. You're not built for an alpha strike, though. You're kind of built as a control army, if I could classify it, where you just have these huge potent combat threats that, say, if you come within 25 inches of the Banshees or whatever it might be, you're just going to die and try to control board space with that while you kind of pressure up the field with, like, carefully positioned Star Weaver, carefully positioned Wave Serpent, that kind of stuff to extend where that that threat range is projecting to. Uh, Let me know if I'm off base here, but that's kind of the vibe I've gotten from your descriptions. And then... Yeah, thank you. Sweet. So... If you're playing the control-style Yanari build, where you have non-interactive ways of dealing damage through Swooping Hawks and Mortal Wound Farseer, if your opponent comes near you to try to stop you, you can just kill them, of course. How do you actually aggress your opponent, though? Like, if they have even, like, a traditional Craftworld's army or some other faction that can sit on its ass and just score close to 100 points, Grey Knights, for example, Thousand Suns, now you have to go go do something about it and do something about it quickly before they just rack up all their points. How? What is your avenue into doing something about it i guess um you are a little bit dependent on uh the terrain in this case um 
units tend to have quite significant threat ranges. So it might be, you know, 18 inches for a reliable threat range or some units um, might be more, might get up to 25 or whatever. These pretty big distances. So if one of their objectives is within, you know, 25 inches of a piece of terrain uh, for you to hide behind, then you can threaten that objective. Um, So, you know, as as long as you can find vaguely mid-board pieces for you to stage behind, um, you're going to be okay. So I actually quite often like to go first with this army, um, and sometimes you might even use that the Phantasm Strat to push to the front of your deployment zone, move as quickly as you can, not straight at the opponent, but straight towards whatever mid-board terrain you can find and stage threat under pressure the mid-board objectives. That's nice. Let's take a quick break uh, for a little bit of uh, identification, let folks know how they can subscribe to the next part. Then we'll come back and talk about uh, some command points, the command point usage and what you start with and you know maybe what you keep in your back pocket for some explosive turns. We'll see you on a second. Like what you're listening to? Be sure to check out the second part of this episode where we break down specifically how our guest plays against all the top armies in the game. Want even more awesome Warhammer content? Check out the War Room. The War Room. You'll gain access to the minds of the best Warhammer players in the world with brand new content every single week. Join our amazing community, elevate your game, and enjoy your hobby more. Chris, thanks for walking us through all this stuff on your list. And I don't remember us mentioning how many command points you start with in your list. And that's a it's a big point. I think it's something that uh, something that maybe a lot of players struggle with. What is the actual thing that they need? How much should they invest in the list building phase versus how much they should keep in the tank for when the game starts? What's your approach to that? Yeah, so I start with three. Um, spent one on the Warlock Relic. Spent one on the Exarch Relics um, for the Banshees and the, and the Hawks. And uh, another one on the Warlord trait for um, that extra AP. I think three is a good spot to start. Um, let's you deep strike a unit and still threaten the Phantasm. Um, and it, it's nice to get a good stack of command points going. So you're at least threatening to to pump a bunch into a Harlequin troop in particular. And um, yeah, really put an explosive damage turnout. So you threaten a phantasm, that's the redeploy. What you're meaning is is keeping that as is something that your opponent must consider. It, now, do you let them know that you have that? I mean, the, or do they always know, like, he's probably going to phantasm? Uh, I would always be reminding my opponent. Um, I tend to remind my opponent of, of most things I have available. But, you know, it, it is often strategically a good idea to sort of keep your opponent in their head thinking about how you could phantasm all your units as far forward as possible. And uh, it often scares them into deploying a bit more defensively than perhaps they should. I think phantasm makes a lot of sense when you're playing a hyper-aggressive approach to Eldar because you need to be able to go from I'm going second behind my walls to I'm going first deploy on the line and really threaten board control and presence there. Would you ever consider playing an Eldar style that doesn't have phantasm as an option? I wouldn't want to. It's it's just it's just so potent to have in your back pocket. Like you're playing Eldar, it's pretty much a guarantee that you've got to hide everything, right? Anything you put out in the opens viable to immediately dying. Um so just the, the fact that the, your opponent has to consider that if you go first everything could no longer be hiding, it could be right at the front of your deployment zone. Um even if you never use it I think it's it's very important to have it available. Yeah, fair enough. I've recently written my first dollar list that has too few CP to Phantasm, and I didn't what? regret it. I didn't regret it. I played one game, I won that game. All right? <laughs> <laughs> you can't argue with success, I don't guess. 100% a, a win. 
Um, is there any cool stuff that you 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 talked about your CP combo with the Harlequins? But I guess that was more of a theoretical maximum. Is there any really cool practical combos you pull off with this army? Um, a lot of the command points just go into basic things like rerolling psychic powers or charges. Um, you can there are a good few ways to do some mortal wounds with command points. So the swooping hawks flying over units can um, drop their grenades and do some mortal wounds. Harlequins charging in can do some mortal wounds. Harlequins can do mortal wounds on sixes. Um, so quite often that will be a good sink for the command points too. Um, I guess this brings me to my last question, Paul, unless you have more stuff in your brutal but cut-in section. Yeah, just I think that, that was a, a nice synopsis there, the, the extra damage, uh, the threat of phantasm. Well, maybe what percentage of the games do you find yourself phantasming? Uh, a pretty darn low percentage. Um, so when I go second, it'd be extremely rare to Phantasm. I've normally deployed defensively ready to go second. If I go first, again, it's pretty rare. Most of the time, the opponent's deployed defensively and not given me up some openings. Um, the main time would be, as I mentioned, when um, I, I see a potential for me to redeploy to the edges of my deployment zone and then use that extra movement to get to some mid-board terrain that I otherwise couldn't reach. It's just a positional thing, I suppose. If your opponent also is aware, you can phantasm. But like you said, it's the threat of it. Um, just having it as an option means your opponent has to deploy much differently. Yeah, nice. No, that was that was it. Thanks for thanks for explaining, Chris. All right, Chris. You have seemed to have skipped one third of your options in this codex, and by that I mean the entire Drukari half of Yanari, uh, along with a lot of other Harlequin data sheets and Eldar data sheets. So I want to just ask the question. I know you didn't spend too much time creating this list, although you did test it for WTC. Were there other units you considered that didn't quite make the cut? Maybe you tried them out and, and they got cut for some reason or another. Are there things you wish to try? What about Drugari, the faction? You know? Yeah, so we'll go back to the original you know, testing for WTC. Um, we had Bat Morisoli on Drukari, Um, and so because of that, I can't put Drukari units in my Unari list. Um, that makes so, sense, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I wasn't testing that. I didn't really rejig the list since then, so I haven't um, really given it thought. Um, I was thinking so, Razor yeah, Flocks and Chimera, things like that really have a nice place. I don't, and... think, I don't think you can take them, sadly. Oh, um, no, damn it. You can, I think you have to, they have to have a Witch Cult or a um, Cabal keyword. I don't think you can take just the... Um, you can't just take a Beastmaster and some Beasts? Yeah, I don't think so. It's it's not particularly well written, the Inari rules, but <laughs> I, I don't believe you can. I'd love to take a big unit of Clawed Fiends and, um, yeah, chuck a four-up invuln on them and, and sort of buff them up um, to no end. Um, but Hellions are something that would be great. Um, so they, you know, quite fast. You stick some Inari buffs on them, they would, they would be a really potent unit. They really benefit um, from Savage Blades too, Ambush Blades. Yeah, Ambush Blades and Jinx. Um, sort of get all those going, and that hit really hard. Oh, you have to um, this army. That's pretty cool. Yep, yep. So the three-man Warlock Skyron unit has Quick and Restrain and uh, Protect Jinx. Um, then uh, Reavers would actually be kind of good too, because um, they're really fast. Um, yeah, they're like a new dimension of speed. They're 28. Uh, you can't advance and charge um, at all with them. Um, if you were just looking for behind enemy lines or something, you could do that um but if you are actually looking to put damage out with them so they don't hit as hard as hellion's base but you can still buff them up a lot they would still hit pretty hard and yeah they move incredibly quick while while doing so 
Um, so that can be cool. Of like a three-man unit to just help with mission play and, and move block a little bit, contest stuff? Or are you thinking like a five to nine-man unit? Yeah, I'm thinking a bigger unit. Um, you could go either, um, but um, I, I would consider trying trying a big one. Um, I don't think I'd be looking at like witches or anything. It's not that they're bad. It's that, you know, it's the Harlequin troops are the troops that you actually want. Um, you don't want to be taking more Eldar troops as tax um, to get witches or something in there. Um, is there anything else that's get more expensive? Uh, do you think they would still have a purpose in your army? Uh, no, they're just bad Hailing Manchies at that point. Um, one thing that is really funny is a, um, Court of the Archon as Yunari. Um, so with all the buffs, um, they actually hit very hard. And, uh, one buff that I didn't mention is a four plus and vulnerable save to a unit. Oh, wow. Um, so it doesn't come up very often in my army because everything dies anyway. Um, but yeah, if you chuck that on a quarter of the Archon, like most people have experienced how annoying killing a quarter of the Archon is by the time they get to a five up in film save. But yeah, with the psychic power for a four up, that sounds like a bad time. And the Incarn makes them fearless too. So that's one of their bigger weaknesses here to do just low leadership. Uh, even models. The Incarn doesn't make them fearless anymore. He makes them more combat attrition modifiers. Okay, so not quite the same, still not bad. Yeah, um, the issue with the Court of the Archon is that you have to have uh, an Archon, and um, it would be a very sad Archon. Can that um, Archon take any of the Archon Warlord traits and relics from Drukhari? So you can if, if he's the Warlord, but then you can't take any Eldar Warlord traits or relics. Um it would be it would be fine, like the Elder Waller traits and relics aren't essential, but I think the ambush of blades for the extra AP is it's part of the I think point. it's too big to pass yeah. up. Um so yeah, like it would it would be reasonable and it would definitely be funny to put a quarter of the archon in there. I love um, Quarter of the Archons are one of my favorite units in 40k, and you made me want to play in Ari just to include one. <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 do it, yeah. Um that 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 could be quite good, um for sure. Well, that's, I think it's going to conclude part one. In part two, we're going to get into some of the matchups, some of how uh, you tangle with other factions out there, how some factions could could have maybe tangled with you to have better results uh, than they did. It's, it's been a pleasure talking with you so far. I want to thank everyone who's joined us to this part of the show. If you are just concluding it here, make sure you please like, share, subscribe, leave some comments, five-star reviews. That's how other folks get to know about the show, that type of interaction. And if you are a subscriber to the next part of the show, we're going to see you in just a minute. Hold tight. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. TheArtOfWar40K.com <laughs>